0: Welcome to You Must Remember This. The podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode of our new series, Gossip Girls. The desire of people to tell a story that is the dream of which my town was built. (laughs) Oh, what a spot to be in. There are two of them in town. Now, it isn't Luella Parsons. It must be Miss Hedda Hopper. What about public insults? Did you ever suffer at the hands of the old Crocs, Lolly and Hedda? Hollywood's best known, best loved, most distinguished reporter. Movie news from both Hollywood and New York. And that dream will remain forever. two decades between World Wars I and II, Luella Parsons became the most important Hollywood gossip columnist in the history of the movie industry. Today, we'll explore how Luella amassed her power by creating what would become a lifelong alliance with powerful newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst, and by using her column to protect Hearst's interests, particularly in terms of his relationship with actress Marion Davies. With Hearst as her backer, and Hearst's needs always in the back of her mind, Parsons would become instrumental in how the industry messaged its way through storm after storm. From prohibition to the end of silent movies, to the threat of government censorship, to the Great Depression. By the end of this episode, this middle-aged single mom will have more power than anyone else writing about movies in the world. Join us, won't you? For part two of Gossip Girls, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. There is some debate amongst historians as to how to rank Luella in terms of importance and precedence against some of the other major forces in gossip in the early 20th century, particularly a New York force of nature named Walter Winchell. Ultimately, Winchell had a larger audience and more influence than Parsons, not least because his beat was never confined to the movies. But it's undeniable that Parsons became a New York-based gossip columnist a few years before Winchell, and that she beat him to the movie beat by a lot. Because when Winchell did become a star columnist, he focused mostly on live performance endemic to New York, particularly Broadway. Eventually, Winchell would expand his purview to not just cover movies, but he also wrote one and appeared in several. But Winchell and many other columnists only turned their attention to the film industry when it began throwing off a flame that was too hot to ignore. Luella, for better or worse, got in on the ground floor and stayed there. Another factor that makes it virtually impossible to compare Luella's apples to Winchell's oranges is tone. Tone. Winchell pioneered a zippy language that allowed him to tease news that neither his editors nor his subjects felt comfortable having aired in print without getting sued. Luella's writing style lacked both the verve and the risk. She generally used flowery, effusive language to pump her subjects up. And for the first decades of her career, She rarely revealed anything that the stars and the studios didn't want out there. When she was doing her job right, her readers would think they knew everything about the stars in question and would never think to question that there could be more to the stories. Usually, there was much more that Luella either glossed over or carefully misdirected readers away from. In that sense, it was Winchell who was truly giving his readers a glimpse behind the scenes, even while his columns constituted their own sideshow. Meanwhile, Parsons tap-danced as fast as she could to keep her audience focused on the facade. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's Fashion and Beauty Memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People on every episode of fashion people i'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases from MA rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media be sure to follow and listen to fashion people a presentation of odyssey in partnership with puck available on the free odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts when luella arrived in new york in 1918 there were no daily movie industry news columns in the local papers. Film coverage was deemed so trivial that most editors didn't think it merited the delegation of resources. Luella ended up at a paper called The Morning Telegraph, and it was a sleazy scene. Housed in a former barn, the paper's offices were a smoke-filled room used as a meeting place for reporters and sources such as Gangsters and Ladies of the Evening. There was always a poker game going on. At The Telegraph, Luella's column became more focused on industry news and the business of movies. It was read by members of the local film industry, located in Astoria and New Jersey, as well as theatrical writers and actors who were curious about breaking in. A big part of Luella's new job was networking, and in Prohibition-era New York, she really hit the nightlife scene. In 1923, she was caricatured in The New Yorker in a drawing of a movie premiere where she was depicted alongside the leading figures, not just in the movie industry, but in the city, including D.W. Griffith, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Al Jolson, and Irving Berlin. It was around that time that Luella Parsons cemented her status by signing a contract to write a daily movie gossip column for the New York American, published by William Randolph Hearst. At the end of our last episode, you may remember, Luella was forced to leave her job in Chicago after her paper was bought by Hearst. So what had changed in five years? Well, a lot. For one thing, Hearst's reputation was marred by his public stance on World War I, which was that the war was an unnecessary intervention that would result in massive bloodshed and benefit no one or thing except for international banking outfits. He was kind of right, but in the moment, this was an unpopular opinion, and Hearst was accused of being pro-German and anti-American. And in that moment, most people didn't even know that Hearst's public opinions were compromised by behind-the-scenes dealings. In 1917, Hearst partnered with a Lithuanian Jew named Ivan Abramson to create a film production company called Graphic Film Corporation. Abramson had a cousin who was drafted into the war effort, who then deserted and was found and charged with treason. Hearst became involved in the effort to clear his business partner's cousin's name, and he enlisted the help of Alabama Senator John Bankhead, who managed to get the cousin freed and labeled a conscientious objector. As quid pro quo, Bankhead asked Hearst and Abramson to give his 16-year-old granddaughter, who hoped to become an actress, her first big break. And so it was that Tallulah Bankhead made her film debut in a Hearst-Abramson production called When Men Betray, a morality play in which the future Broadway superstar played a rape victim. This was around the time that Hearst bought Luella's Chicago paper. So that gives more credence to the theory that, at a time when his own reputation was sunken, he didn't want an actual film reporter on his papers because he didn't want to take the chance that his corrupt behind-the-scenes practices, as both a film producer and a newspaper publisher, would be exposed. But the big thing that changed over the next few years was that Hearst had begun a relationship with actress Marion Davies. We did a whole episode of this podcast about Hearst, Davies, and the Orson Welles movie that fictionalizes them, Citizen Kane, which you may want to listen to if you haven't yet. In this season, we'll assume you have some knowledge of who these people are and what their relationships were like so that we can focus only on the details pertinent to the stories of Luella and Hedda. In 1918, Hearst bankrolled the Marion Davies Film Company, and the following year, Davies secretly gave birth to their love child, Patricia. Hearst would eventually acquire a reputation as a film producer whose brain was in his pants, because from this point forward, he was primarily involved in feature films starring Marion. But this was not necessarily by design. At various points, Hearst attempted to get into business with other performers, including Olive Thomas, Mary Pickford, and Charlie Chaplin. Then, in 1922, Hearst spent a fortune producing and promoting Marion Davies' first real hit film, when knighthood was in flower. This picture had the desired effect of turning Davies into a movie star, but in the brighter spotlight, there was more risk that her status as Hearst's mistress would become exposed. This was a problem, not just because Hearst's wife Millicent was still in the picture and had already acted on her jealousy by maneuvering to minimize publicity for Marion in Hearst's papers, but also because a scandal plagued Hollywood had just installed Will Hayes to serve as a public check on private misbehavior. In early 1923, Hayes received a letter from a Chicago journalist asking the censorship czar what he planned to do when, quote, the Marion Davies scandal breaks. I assume you are aware that it is imminent and that when the blow-off comes, it will create a bigger sensation than many of the meretricious doings at Hollywood. It's unclear exactly which part of Davies' hidden private life this was in reference to, or what blow-off the journalist was predicting. But Hearst and Davies certainly had reason to be paranoid that secrets would be exposed. And that alone, was justification for investing in good press to drown out the expected bad press. Separately from her sugar daddy's needs, we think, Marion had befriended Luella, inviting the columnist, who turned 40 in 1921, to party with Marion and her 20-something friends. Parsons prided herself on being able to keep up with a fast crowd. She routinely party-hopped late into the night, collecting material for her columns. But by the end of 1922, she was starting to get burned out. She was working very hard for very little pay. And to add to her emotional turmoil, at the end of that year, her mother died. Luella had enrolled her daughter Harriet in a private school, but she was going to need an infusion of cash to keep her there. So Hearst and Parsons needed one another. With the release of When Knighthood Was in Flower, Luella began a campaign to get Hearst's attention by lavishing praise on Marion. She didn't hide her intentions from her friend. In fact, Parsons asked Davies if she would put in a good word for her with the chief. One night in 1923, Marion and Hurst crashed a party Luella was attending, hosted by a theater owner's trade association. Hurst and Davies joined Parsons' table, and Luella was able to pitch herself as Hurst's new columnist. Hurst offered Parsons a contract at $150 a week, which she refused, insisting she was worth much more. She had her own contract drawn up, stipulating a salary of 250 a week. Months passed with the two parties at an impasse. But finally in November, under pressure from Marion, Hearst relented to Luella's demands. Hearst launched a huge blitz to announce her signing, even putting Luella's face on the side of newspaper delivery trucks. One of Hearst's advertisements trumpeted Luella as the personal friend of every film star past and present and has access to more important motion picture news than any other one writer. This is the most boring version of how Luella got the job that would fuel the rest of her career, which means it's probably true the salacious version we covered in an episode of this podcast from 2018 about Thomas Ince, a pioneering producer who ended up dead after a night on Hearst's yacht off the coast of Southern California in late 1924. Though the official report held that Ince, who had been suffering from chronic illnesses and had ignored his doctor-dictated diet, died from a heart attack conspiracy theorists believed he had been shot by Hearst, caught in the crossfire after the chief discovered Marion fooling around with Charlie Chaplin. This conspiracy theory included whispers that Parsons had been on the boat that night and had pacted with Hearst to keep Ince's true cause of death silent. This theory can be effectively disproved by all the publicity Hearst launched on Parsons' behalf, which began before Ince's death and was testament to Hearst's commitment to Luella. Whatever sparked it, Hearst's hiring of Luella ensured good publicity for him and Marion, and Luella's ability to guarantee that good publicity ensured her job security. Luella's column for Hearst was titled The Screen and Its Players, which was fitting because now its content would be focused on the front face of the industry, the stars on the screen, rather than the behind the scenes players at the studios, the maneuvering that kept the wheels of the industry turning. This was how the men behind the scenes, including Hearst, wanted it. At a time when the very industry was in danger of being shut down by the government, either because of the supposed depravity of the stars or due to the anti-Semitist antipathy directed at the studio heads, men like Hearst needed someone like Luella to be a cheerleader for the industry. Over the next few years, her columns would start projecting a fantasy version of The Dream Factory in which most if not all of the stars had hearts of gold and few if any of them drank Prohibition-era booze or engaged in anything but puppy love or marital congress. And that included Marion Davies, a woman who occupied the shining center of the Hollywood party scene, whose primary relationship was with another woman's husband. Everyone in Hollywood knew about Davies and Hearst's relationship, especially after 1926, when Marion became the official hostess at Hearst's spectacular new home in San Simeon, known as Hearst Castle. But the general public was not supposed to know about the affair, because if they did, the political correctness of the time would have mandated that one or both of the lovers be publicly shamed and punished. Luella Parsons, played a big part in ensuring that wouldn't happen. By 1925, Luella was already being accused of being Hearst's lapdog. Variety snarked that Hearst, quote, got his money's worth when he hired Parsons because in the bulk of her columns, she was going, quote, hook, line, and sinker for Hearst and the cosmopolitan pictures which her boss turns out. Luella was also, functionally, Louis B. Mayer's lapdog because Hearst's cosmopolitan pictures was now operating under the auspices of MGM. Later, Luella's assistant and sometime ghostwriter, Dorothy Manners, recalled that all coverage of both Hearst's pictures and Mayer's was required to be extremely effusive. You had to say this was the greatest thing that ever was made and better than any other picture you ever saw, Manners said. She added that each review was supposed to evoke an orgasm. Parsons quickly proved her loyalty by joining Mayer and Hearst in a scheme against Luella's friend, actress May Murray, who had announced that she was going to leave MGM for a lucrative deal at UFA, the state-run film studio in Berlin. Luella invited May to a dinner party at Hearst's house. When May arrived, she found that she and Luella were the only women in a room filled with men, including Will Hayes. Murray quickly realized that the purpose of the dinner was to intimidate her into staying at MGM, which Hearst and Hayes managed by threatening to prevent Marie's films from being distributed in the US, which would have been fatal for her film career. They pressed her for an answer on the spot. May looked across the table at Luella for support and found her with her notebook out, ready to write up a story for her column on the actress's decision. May Murray felt she had no choice but to break her German contract and stay tied to MGM. Luella's participation in this extortion obviously impressed Hearst because he then trusted her with an operation much closer to his heart. Marion Davies had moved to Los Angeles, where MGM was based, while Hearst continued to spend much time in New York, tending to his most important newspaper, In the spring of 1925, Hearst asked Luella to make the move west, too, so that she could keep an eye on Marion in his absence. Even if much of the Ince story had proven false or embellished, Hearst apparently believed that Davies had dallied with Charlie Chaplin, and he wanted to know what else his mistress was getting up to while 3,000 miles away. Luella only had her job with Hearst because of her friendship with Marion, and yet she readily agreed to turn spy on her sometime bestie. In Los Angeles, Davies welcomed Parsons into her inner circle, which did indeed include Chaplin. There were regular beach parties, dancing, and lots of drinking. In the last days of silent Hollywood, there was a lot of partying. And Luella, though now in her late 40s, kept up with all the stars half her age and then kept the fact of these parties virtually completely off the record. She did, however, dutifully report everything she saw to Hearst and then got a lesson in how power in this triad really worked on the night of the premiere of Chaplin's The Gold Rush. That night, Luella watched Hurst present his beloved with a new diamond bracelet and informed him that Davies didn't deserve such a gift because she had been such a bad girl. Neither Davies nor Hurst seemed shocked by this reveal. Davies turned to Hurst and said, don't pay any attention to Luella. She hasn't got any brains. In the moment, Hearst willfully or otherwise decided to conveniently forget Luella's purpose for even being in Hollywood and said, Anything that Marion does is all right with me. Shortly after that, Luella returned to New York. On the East Coast, she continued her hard-living lifestyle. The following winter, she was forced to slow down, when she was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Hearst showed his loyalty to Luella, or maybe more accurately, repaid the many favors she had performed for him by giving his columnist a full year off with pay. When Luella was fully recovered, Hearst offered her a major promotion. She'd move out to Hollywood permanently to serve as the motion picture editor of Hearst's syndicate, the Universal News Service. This meant that not only would her new home paper be the Los Angeles Examiner, one of the two top publications in what was now the confirmed movie capital of the world, but it would also appear in all of Hearst's papers nationwide. It was this promotion that truly cemented Luella Parsons as the top movie gossip columnist in the country. Everything was going great for Luella, for and Davies, and for Hollywood as a whole. Box office totals had never been higher, and years passed without a scandal breaking that seemed like it could bring the whole racket tumbling down, the way the Roscoe, Fatty Arbuckle rape trials had at the beginning of the decade. And then something happened that threatened to change everything. William Randolph Hearst did not want movies to talk. The Jazz Singer, released in 1927, is usually credited as the thunderbolt that ended the silent era. It's more accurate to say that The Jazz Singer convinced the studios that there was money to be made in talking pictures. It actually took a few years for the transition to fully take effect. Part of the reason for that was that every silent star had to have their recorded voices tested, and then the performers and the technicians had to learn to use the new technologies. This whole new era brought on nothing but anxiety for Marion Davies, who had stuttered since childhood. The studios used the technological transition and the claim that some stars just couldn't talk good as an excuse to cut exorbitant salaries. Marion knew that she and Hearst had a sweetheart deal at MGM, and she knew her stutter could ruin it. Hearst knew this, too. And so, at his direction, from the first whispers that Warner Brothers was committing to incorporating music and dialogue into their movies, Luella began to fill her column with anti talkie propaganda. But even the united power of Hearst, Parsons, and MGM couldn't totally stop what was coming. And once the industry on the whole committed to the change, Luella's column became the clearinghouse for News of the Revolution, a daily must-read detailing which studio was investing in what technology to be showcased in which films. And more juicily the news of which stars passed their sound auditions, and who didn't. Knowing this, studios began trading Luella exclusives in exchange for keeping negative stories about these auditions out of her column. These backroom deals between Luella and her subjects didn't end when the transition to talkies was complete. On the contrary, they became business as usual. Luckily for everyone involved, Marion, after working with the best speech coaches that Hearst's money could buy, passed her sound test. She worked a lot in the first few years of the sound era, appearing as the veteran opposite some of the leading lights of the next generation, including Clark Gable and Bing Crosby. So she survived, but Luella thrived. The transition to talkies would only raise Parson's profile and importance to the industry. In 1930, Luella married a doctor named Harry Martin, nicknamed Dockey. You know, because he was a doctor, Martin was one of the few physicians trusted by the studios to treat problematic situations like STDs and unwanted pregnancies. Through a contact at Yale, he obtained a hookup for an injectable synthetic testosterone, which functioned like a prehistoric Viagra. He'd share all of his patients' details with Luella, who would never actually print news of a star's abortion or VD diagnosis, but she could then trade that information for scoops she could use in her column. Harry and Luella partied together, gambled together, Luella could not resist playing the horses at Santa Anita, and they shared in the bounty of Christmas loot showered on Luella by everyone who wanted kind mentions in her columns. In addition to their mansion in Beverly Hills, they bought a farm in the Valley where they'd spend the weekends surrounded by friends like actress Bibi Daniels and studio stalwart's Harry Brand and Howard Strickling. They were regulars at Hearst Castle and at Marion's Beach House in Santa Monica. More than once, Harry drank so much that he would pass out in public. One unfortunate incident occurred at a costume party thrown by actress Carol Lombard. One guest ogled Harry, passed out in a toga with his legs spread and quipped, there's Luella Parsons' column. Their mutual booze intake could cause problems in the marriage too. About once a week, Harry would call a lawyer friend in the middle of the night and say, I'm going to divorce that damn woman. By morning, the call and the drunken fight that would have precipitated it would have been forgotten. With the arrival of the Great Depression, the tone and substance of Luella's columns changed. She devoted less space to puff pieces about how she knew for a fact that a heart of gold beat inside every on-screen vamp, or at least every on-screen vamp who wasn't in direct competition with Marion Davies. She expended more effort on projecting the idea that stars are just like us and that they suffer hard times, too. To match the national mood, she began to pick public fights with stars who refused to play the game by inviting Luella to lunch or tea, letting her into their homes and their lives. Most notoriously, Parsons used her column to skewer Greta Garbo, who for years had made a living off a persona that was best described as erotically aloof. But during Depression days... Anything that smacked of pretension became an easy target, and Luella filled her columns frequently with criticism of Garbo's quote-unquote coldness. Luella herself began to use the term spanking to describe her harsher commentary against stars, almost always women, who had broken some kind of written or unwritten rule. Jeanette MacDonald an operetta star who featured in a number of lucrative early film musicals, got spanked in Luella's column for being too fat. Mae West was spanked for being too fat and too old. Katharine Hepburn was spanked for being too much of a snob to submit to an interview. Almost always, Luella gave this kind of coverage to a performer who needed to be reminded that as an individual they were not more powerful than the system in which they worked. And in fact, that system, the network of producers and studio executives and newspaper columnists could turn against a star in an instant if they weren't careful, if they didn't make an effort to submit to expectations. Luella may have been hired to protect Hearst's interests, but she now understood that every mogul in town collectively buttered her bread. Stars would come and go, but the important thing was to protect the industry that hired those stars. In order to play her part in reinforcing Hollywood as an institution, Luella codified the persona that she'd more or less hold on to for the rest of her career. She was simultaneously cheerleader and bully. Often, she'd have to launch a bullying campaign because she was such a loyal cheerleader. An example of this involved Howard Hughes. Luella had published the first review of Hughes' breakout hit, Hell's Angels, and her rave had set the tone, leading to Big Box Office and the breakout of its female lead, Jean Harlow. But then, in late 1930. Hughes bought the film rights to a recent, controversial novel called Queer People. The queer in Queer People didn't mean queer as in LGBTQ. It was more like an adjective for bizarre or out of the ordinary. This novel was a satire of Hollywood, one of the first of its kind, and it was uniquely vicious in its portrayal of an amoral world, in which, like in the old New York of Hearst's youth, only a thin scrim separated the facade of the entertainment industry from the sordid goings-on behind the scenes. Queer people hit particularly close to home because in the end, a starlet ended up dead. And already, just about two decades into Hollywood's life as the movie capital, a few starlets had died before their time. Also, the novel's portrayal of the studio moguls was notably anti-Semitic, bringing to life every Jewish movie executive's nightmare imaginary of how they were really seen by a nation of wasps. If you've read my book, Seduction, you know that from his first arrival in Los Angeles, Howard Hughes cultivated a persona as an outsider. His greatest wish was to break all the rules of the Hollywood establishment and show the moguls who dismissed him as a hick from Texas that he could beat them at their own game. With Hell's Angels a cultural sensation, Hughes felt emboldened to buy a novel about Hollywood that everyone in Hollywood hated. He threatened to make the first movie that truly went behind the scenes. This would have been unacceptable. It was the exact opposite of Luella's mission. So she used her column to try to stop it. As soon as she learned of Hughes's intention, she wrote that making a movie based on queer people would be, quote, a grave mistake. She then contacted Will Hayes, who advised Hughes to shelve the material. He did not, and instead hired director Louis Milestone. After a private meeting with Luella, Milestone left the project. Then Hughes hired Leo McCary to direct. After his own private meeting with Luella, McCary too left the project. Finally, Hughes got the message, and Queer People was never filmed. Luella was such a fearsome character at this point that she was able to bully stars into working for her for free. In 1931, Luella launched her own radio show on CBS, sponsored by Sunkist. The idea was that she would interview celebrities, but in order to do that, she had to get celebrities to agree to be interviewed. At that time, a top star could command $5,000 for a radio appearance. But Luella insisted that stars appear on her show gratis. Every star she approached knew that if they did not donate their labor, Luella would turn against them in her column. So they all gave in and continued to do so for years. That Mary Pickford appeared on Luella's first radio broadcast and did so without asking for her usual substantial fee is testament to how important everyone in the industry believed kissing up to Luella to be. Pickford was more than a movie star. She was one of the original artists who co founded United Artists. And as her on screen career was waning, she would continue to flex her muscle as a producer and powerful voice on the UA board. She had also been friends with Luella since 1915. But by 1933, Pickford's storybook marriage to Douglas Fairbanks was falling apart. Fairbanks had fallen in love with an actress named Sylvia Ashley, and he informed Pickford via telegram that he intended to live in England with his new love. Given the length, intensity, and mass of celebrity surrounding the Pickfair marriage— this was the 1933 version of the famous Sex in the City scene in which Carrie gets dumped via Post-it note. A desperate Mary called her friend, screenwriter Frances Marion, and invited her to lunch. Frances invited Luella to tag along. At the lunch, Pickford showed Luella the telegram she had received from her husband. Later... Mary would claim that she swore the gossip columnist to secrecy. Frances Marion claimed that Mary only showed it to Luella knowing that she would leak the news and that the two women had agreed on this plan together before Luella arrived at the table. I'm inclined to believe Frances Marion on this one because it seems very Mary Pickford to shrewdly control the press narrative while claiming innocence and ignorance. For her part, Luella insisted, completely improbably, that she resisted the scoop. I kept thinking that if I didn't print Mary's decision to divorce Doug, it might never happen. But it was Mary herself who changed my mind. She called me later that night and said, if you don't use the story, Luella, I'll give it to someone else. So Luella broke the news of Hollywood sweethearts breaking up in her Sunday morning column. Luella called it the biggest story of her career and had no regrets. But Mary had some. After Luella's column ran, the actress was mobbed by journalists looking for follow-up details. Feeling like she had lost control, Mary blamed Luella and a frost fell over their friendship. There was an important lesson to be learned here. A star may bring a columnist a story, not just on the record, but virtually wrapped in a bow, but that doesn't necessarily mean that when they're talking to the columnist, the star is totally aware of how the story is going to make them feel when it's printed. Call it confessor's remorse. The problem with it is that famous people have not historically been quick to accept personal responsibility. I mean, why would you if you never had to? And they're much more likely to deflect blame onto the person quoting them. In order to preempt this, a columnist like Luella sometimes had to intuit how to shape the star's story so that the Mary Pickford in the equation could give the journalist the gift of her exclusive and walk away feeling unburdened rather than racked with regret. Luella's frenemieship with Mary Pickford served its purpose, but her most professionally complicated friendship was still with Marion Davies, whose career continued to exert an influence on Luella's column well into the 1930s. At the beginning of that decade, Davies fought over material with Norma Shearer, a top MGM star and also the wife of executive Irving Thalberg. Shearer was considered to be the more talented actress, and Thalberg wielded more power at the studio than Hearst, so Shearer usually came out on top. Finally, at Hearst's insistence, Luella blacklisted Shearer from her column, completely ignoring one of the industry's biggest stars. When the rivalry between the two actresses reached a breaking point, Hearst took his production company And Marion and left MGM for Warner Brothers. At that point, Hearst commanded Luella to switch the baseline allegiance of her column from MGM to Warner's. This shift in studio loyalties occurred just as Hearst was shifting political loyalties. Hearst had always been pro union, but beginning in 1933, the rise of unions in Hollywood threatened to cut significantly into studio profits. And then the unionization wave hit him where it really hurt. The American Newspaper Guild began a series of strikes at Hearst's papers, which were already suffering from a depression-related loss of ad revenue. Hearst had also been a staunch supporter of Franklin D. Roosevelt, but Hearst connected the surge in union activity with the New Deal and decided that all of it needed to be stopped. So in 1934, Hearst's papers radically shifted to the right and began railing against Roosevelt, as well as fomenting conspiracy theories about the rise of communism in all industries, but particularly the two industries with which Hearst himself was most involved. In all things, Luella took her cues from Hearst, including politics and the voice of her column moved to the right along with the voice of the papers in which it appeared. Still, Parsons was shocked and hurt when the left-wing media began attacking her as a handmaiden to fascism and corruption. Luella could dish it, but she wasn't great at taking it. She was also feeling the stress of increased competition. Walter Winchell, who had chiefly been a Broadway gossip columnist during Luella's stint in New York, was now including movie gossip in his columns, which were also syndicated by Hearst. Winchell used the excuse of a nervous breakdown to transplant himself to Los Angeles temporarily, from where he declared that Hollywood's parties outdistanced those on Broadway or anyplace else in the world. But eventually... Winchell realized that being physically in Hollywood made it harder for him to write honestly about all those people he was meeting at parties. Increasingly, it was Luella who set the tone for coverage of the film industry. Every studio knew she would protect their interests. By threatening to pull their extremely lucrative advertising, the studios could scare other publications into doing their bidding, too. One new competitor who proved to be the exception to the rule was Sidney Skolsky, a New York refugee who specialized in what he called tin types, compact profiles of stars that included titillating factoids about things like what they wore to bed. Skolsky was Luella's first significant Los Angeles-based rival. And what made him really dangerous was that he actually thought filmmaking was interesting, He started running a series of stories called Watching Them Make Pictures, in which he revealed elements of the production process that were usually either invisible to the ticket-buying audience or intentionally obscured. For instance, in reporting on the making of Cecil B. DeMille's 1934 version of Cleopatra, Skolsky revealed that a sequence which seemed to depict thousands of men in battle was actually filmed with a fraction of that many actors— using the 1934 version of green screen to create the illusion of crowds. Skolsky was viciously attacked for this piece by the trade paper Variety, which claimed it was both unethical and short-sighted for a columnist to dispel an illusion. MGM threatened to pull its advertising from Skolsky's paper unless his columns were reined in. But Skolsky's editors stood by him, and the threat turned out to be empty. MGM couldn't afford to not advertise their films in a major paper. Skolsky played a role in an early effort to provide Luella with some stiff competition. By the mid-1930s, Parsons' radio show Hollywood Hotel was a huge hit, even inspiring new tourism at the real Hollywood Hotel, a relic of pre-movie industry L.A., far from the studio where Parsons' show was actually broadcast from. The success of Hollywood Hotel inspired a competing show built around Mary Pickford. Parties at Pickfair, launched in February 1936, was designed to replicate the still-coveted experience of an invitation into the living room of the now-middle-aged woman who was still known nationwide as America's sweetheart. But the radio version of that experience didn't catch on with listeners right away, and Skolsky was brought on to do a gossip segment, essentially to make Pickford's show more like Parsons. Luella was livid that Mary was trying to compete on her turf at all, and she first threatened to blacklist Pickford from her column, and then she threatened to blacklist anyone who went on Mary's show instead of hers. Unable to get good guests, parties at Pickfair sung further in the ratings, and after four months, it was canceled. Skowski's um, biting nature came into direct conflict with Luella very early into his stint in Hollywood, when he was still writing for Hearst's New York Mirror. In the same issue... That paper ran a column by Luella about how Greta Garbo was soon to marry conductor Leopold Stokowski, and a column by Skolsky, insisting that no marriage was imminent. It's impossible to imagine this happening today, but back then, these columns were independently edited and sent to the wire service, and no one knew about the conflict in the columns, until they read the paper the next day. The upshot was that it appeared that Skolsky was deliberately undercutting Luella. Luella immediately got her revenge by telling Hearst that Skolsky was a communist. Hearst informed Skolsky that he would not be renewing his contract at the Mirror. Skolsky landed on his feet at the New York Post but only after he and Parsons ran into one another at Chasen's restaurant and Luella took gleeful credit for getting Skolsky fired. My impulse was to smack her, Skolsky read in his autobiography, but I knew I couldn't hit a woman, especially in Chasen's. So instead, Skolsky bit Luella on the arm. After that, they managed to come to a truce. Despite all these new bylines and voices, Luella Parsons was still the undisputed queen of the gossips. Her status was cemented in 1936, when Warner Brothers decided to make a movie called Hollywood Hotel, based on her radio show. Luella would play herself in the movie, but even that role was somewhat beyond her talents as an actress, and most of her scenes were subsequently cut. But that didn't really matter, because the movie still served as proof that Luella Parsons truly existed on the same plane of power and public notoriety as the stars she wrote about. The trailer called her the First Lady of Hollywood. And that designation stuck. The Hollywood Hotel movie would be a last hurrah of sorts, before Luella Parsons was forced to truly share the spotlight with an upstart. Next time on You Must Remember This, the story of how Hedda Hopper, a washed up actress with no journalistic experience or conventional talent, disrupted the gossip industry and created the template for politicized outrage about popular culture that plagues us today. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests. Julie Klausner played Luella Parsons. Julie wrote, created, and starred in Difficult People, one of the funniest shows of the last 10 years, which you can watch on Hulu. And she and Tom Sharpling have a podcast called Double Threat, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod. We're on Facebook and Instagram too. And if you go to our website, you youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. You can also support the podcast on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes and my monthly media log. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find the show. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new story from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.